Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're excited to be with you as we continue our recently started series on Anchored by Truth that we're calling Truth and Proof. As we mentioned last time, this series was inspired by a teaching series that Dr. Greg Alexander did for his Sunday school class a few years ago. As just about everyone knows, the Christian faith in America has been subjected to more challenges in the last decade than probably in the first two centuries of our country's existence. So, We wanted to follow Dr. Alexander's lead and do a series on what is often called apologetics. In essence, it's the defense of the Christian faith. Apologetics helps us demonstrate that the Christian faith has a firm basis in reason and evidence. To help us explore this very important topic today in the studio, we have R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D.? Would you like to remind everyone why you felt it was so important for us to do this series? Well, as we mentioned last time on Anchored by Truth, we live in a day and age where the traditional historical cultural consensus in our nation and in large parts of the world has shifted. Some commentators have said that we are now living in a, quote, post-Christian world. Now, for people who are not believers in Christ, that means that they live in a world that they see as having gone beyond the constraints and what they would call the narrowness of Christianity. And we see that all about us. Mainline churches are experiencing declines, not only in their membership, but in their influence on society, on the government, on education, on the family, and on the culture as a whole. And as we look around us, we see that young people are far more concerned about what's happening with this popular celebrity or that popular sports figure than they are with what happened with Jesus when he ministered on this earth. And we also see that people are more concerned with their temporary pleasures than they are with their eternal destinies. Our society is all about money, entertainment, free expression, you know, the anything goes. Everywhere, it's Babylon. It's the city of Satan where it's all about me. Well, this condition is obviously dangerous to individual destinies, but it is also dangerous to the destiny of our communities and our nation. And that's why it's so important for the church to remind everyone around us that this kind of cultural calculus, beyond just being dangerous, it's unsustainable. But we in the church need to remember that our primary mission is not one of social or cultural preservation. It's one of reconciliation, the reconciliation between men and God. So we don't want to lose sight of the need to marry our intellectual defense of Christianity with our intentional concern for the welfare of our neighbors. 
That's a great point. At the close of our last episode, we mentioned that we cannot help people understand the basis of our faith without reminding ourselves of the importance of both our head knowledge and heart concerns. There's an old saying that, quote, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, unquote. Or, as Dr. Alexander put it in one of his lessons, knowing what is in our heads is not as important as the one who is in our hearts. We will never assist the Holy Spirit in drawing anyone to Christ if we rely only on the objective and academic facts of Christianity. Christians called to the ministry of reconciliation, i.e., bridging the gap between Christ and those in need of knowing Him, and pulling the one who's unwilling toward the one who is always willing. And we must do these things as the apostles taught us, with patience, diligence, and of course, love. And I think that's a very important reminder. The primary reason apologetics is an important area of study is because of the relevance between apologetics and salvation. And unfortunately, that's never been truer than in this day and time. We live in that age, as we've mentioned, where the historical cultural consensus has shifted. And in this post-Christian world, many people who are not believers just don't see the relevance of Christianity or any religion, for that matter, to their daily lives. They're completely unaware of Jesus' warning in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. But it doesn't have to be this way, does it? The power of the gospel is to change the destiny of individuals with the trajectory of societies. Now, I know that Dr. Alexander is quite a fan of Norman Geisler, who is one of the premier apologists of the last 50 years. And you share much of the admiration for Geisler, don't you? And both of you particularly like Geisler's view on why apologetics is important to the church. Why don't you share a little of that with our audience? Well, according to Geisler, we study apologetics for three reasons. First reason is, God commands it in the Bible. In 1 Peter 3.15, that's probably the most frequently cited verse on why we need to arm ourselves with, as the verse puts it, we have a hope that lies within us. But another great verse is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, and I'm quoting now, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Then there's also Philippians chapter 1, verse 16, quoting again Paul, who says, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And there's also Jude, verse 3, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. So, Scripture is replete with commands from God to be prepared to give reasons that we have the hope that lies within us. In other words, we have to be prepared to give reasons for why we believe what we believe. Not only does God command us to be able to defend our faith, because that's the basic purpose of apologetics, but Geisler says our human ability to reason also make apologetics necessary. That's correct. Geisler says that the second purpose for apologetics is that our human reason demands that we do it. And this fact is also demonstrated in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, Come now, 
Let us reason together, says the Lord. Another verse that demonstrates the validity of this point is 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. And Geisler goes on to say, Socrates said, The unexamined life is not worth living. Well, I think Socrates would have said, if the unexamined life is not worth living, well, the unexamined belief is not worth believing. And so all of this together says that it is incumbent upon Christians to be able to give a reason for our hope. And in fact, that's part of the great commandment that God gave us, to love God with all our mind as well as with our heart and soul. So the first reason we pursue apologetics is because the Bible commands it. And the second reason is because reason, really nothing more than good common sense, compels us to do so. It's hard for human beings to place their trust in something that goes against that common sense. The human facility for logic and reason means that if something doesn't make good sense, most people are far more likely to reject it than accept it. That's also correct. And that feeds directly into the third reason that Geisler says we do apologetics. The world needs it. People will rightly refuse to believe without evidence. God created humans as rational beings, and so he expects them to live rationally, in effect, to look before they leap. Now, this does not mean that there is no room for faith in human lives, but God wants us to take our steps of faith in the light of evidence rather than to just make a leap in the dark. And we often point out on Anchored by Truth that the belief that there is a great divide between faith and reason is a myth. You agree with that, don't you? Absolutely. You know, Dr. Alexander defined reason as all the subjective and personal acts of our mind by which we discover, understand, or seek to demonstrate truth. Well, if we put our faith in something which is true, And if reason is the product of the human mind's desire to discover truth, well, shouldn't those two things agree? Well, the answer is yes, of course they will. And ultimately, they're both ending at the same place. So we can use our reason to discover truths about things, even which are not necessarily tangible to our human senses or our human ability to perceive the world around us. For instance, something like the Trinity. So in this case... Faith is not contrary to reason, but faith is over and above reason. And in many cases, reason actually will precede faith. Because, for instance, Christianity is based on the actual historic Christ being the actual Christ of the Bible. And so, because we use our reason to discover facts about history and facts about Christ, then when we placed our trust in Christ, We're not just exercising blind faith, but we're having faith which is supported by reasoning and by reasons. We study the Bible in order to understand, that's reasoning, what we believe, and that's our faith. Reason does not necessarily cause faith, but faith is most certainly not opposed to reason. I think that's such an important point. The world, meaning the secular world, does not have a monopoly on reason. In fact, some of the greatest thinkers and scientists of all time were devout Christians. So, where do you want to start for today? Well, I want to start with a seemingly very simple point, that truth is knowable. Now, I know that that seems simplistic, 
But in our day and time, not only is Christianity frequently under attack, but so is the basic concept that truth is absolute and knowable. But if our ultimate goal is to establish the truth of Christianity, we better start off by talking about what truth is and what we can know about truth. And the fact that truth is absolute and knowable is not just exclusive to Christianity, is it? Even non-Christian philosophers have recognized the importance of truth in securing knowledge, haven't they? Absolutely. And one of those philosophers, for instance, was Aristotle. Aristotle was born during what we call the intertestamental period in the year 384 B.C. Now, we're talking about Aristotle because Aristotle was one of the great thinkers throughout history. He wasn't a Christian, but he was still a great thinker. And Aristotle taught us how to think properly about reality. And therefore, that helps us think properly about the question of God's existence. Aristotle discovered principles that are the undeniable principles of reality. And these principles are sometimes referred to as the first principles of knowledge. Now, using these principles, Aristotle formalized a system of correct thinking that we call logic. Logic is an instrument of human knowledge. Logic is the skillful use of the principles that govern how the mind works, and also how God's mind works. In other words, logic imitates God's mind, and from logic, we can not only learn about what we are, but we can learn about what we should be. Aristotle tells us, quoting here, Wisdom is knowledge about certain principles and causes, and, quote, Truth is what is, and is not what is not. Well, that's the starting point for what's called the correspondence theory of truth. Or in other words, truth is absolute and truth corresponds to what is real. And you have said that Aristotle's influence on Christian apologetics is immensely important. He entered Plato's academy in about 367 BC and stayed there until Plato's death in 347 BC. He was the personal teacher of Alexander the Great, beginning in about 342 B.C. And because Aristotle was so influential on Alexander the Great, as Alexander's influence spread, so did Aristotle's. Aristotle's teaching on the physical sciences, psychology, philosophy, and logic spread along with the Greek language and the culture throughout the known world. In Anchored by Truth's series on the intertestamental period, we pointed out how God used the spread of the Greek language and culture as part of his preparation for Jesus' arrival into the world. I agree. And one way in which Aristotle's influence, for instance, was felt on apologetics was Aristotle's influence on Thomas Aquinas, who was one of the great apologists for the last two millennia. But let's back up for just a second. Aristotle's view of God came from his view of the nature of reality, and Aristotle called that metaphysics. But Aristotle's view of God was certainly not the view of God as the creator as God was understood by the Jews. Aristotle did not have at his disposal the personal revelation of God as God had given it to the Jews. And therefore, Aristotle understood God in the Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 sense as being a logical necessity in order to explain the cosmos. But Aristotle did not understand the God of love, the God of concern for people and for creation. Aristotle saw God as necessary, and Aristotle felt very comfortable in proving that God was a logical necessity, 
But for Aristotle, God was pure thought. He was pure intelligence. He was not the creator, personal God that the Jews knew. So how does Aristotle tie into Aquinas? Because Aristotle's work, much of which was lost for centuries, wound up being the launching pad for the philosophy, but not the theology, of Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas lived between 1225 A.D. and 1274 A.D. And Aquinas considered himself to be indebted to Aristotle for his principles of philosophy. But Aquinas was not what you might call a Christianized Aristotle. Aquinas did not hesitate to criticize Aristotle when the revealed truth of Christianity required that he do so. Aristotle was concerned with what the world is and how it functions. Aquinas was more concerned to explain why the world exists. And again, one advantage that Aquinas had that Aristotle did not was Aquinas had access to the Old Testament. So Aquinas, at least in large part, undoubtedly refuted Aristotelianism for at least one reason, and that was the proclamation by God of his personal name in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God said, and I quote, I am who I am. As a reminder to our audience, God's proclamation, I am who I am, was a direct response to Moses asking God for his name. Moses was concerned that if he went down into Egypt to say to the Israelites that God had told him to bring freedom to them, they would want to know who exactly had sent him to them. So God answered Moses with what is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, I am who I am. And what you're saying is that Aquinas knew about the declaration, and it's quite likely that Aristotle did not. Exactly. Aristotle was not in any way influenced by the ancient Jewish writings, and Aristotle died 322 years before Christ was born. But that did not stop Aristotle from being able to arrive at a correct understanding of the nature of truth. Just by using logic and reason, Aristotle was able to develop an understanding of truth, that truth corresponds to that which really exists. And one of the inextricable extensions of this correspondence view of truth, that truth is what corresponds to reality, means that truth is not defined by individual opinions. Truth is not defined by whether we accept it or even whether we understand it. And truth is also not defined even by whether we don't have enough evidence to prove it. But we can know the truth, can't we? And a simple way that we can know the truth is to begin by following the line of reasoning developed by the French mathematician René Descartes. Descartes wanted an absolutely rock-solid starting place to begin his understanding of the universe around him. So, simply put, Descartes said that he could be sure that he at least existed because if he didn't, he couldn't be asking the question or answering it. Now, someone might ask, But what if this thing we call existence is just an illusion? We could reply in the same way that Ravi Zacharias did when he was asked that question. Ravi answered the question with his own question, and that was, and just who is it that is experiencing this illusion? Descartes put it this way, I am thinking, therefore I am. Descartes' reasoning was that there must be something in existence before that something can do anything. Thinking is doing something. So, Descartes said, if I can think, then I can be sure that I exist. 
and that was his starting point to begin establishing a wider understanding of the universe, creation, and existence. Yes, Descartes was able to find an irrefutable truth to begin his reasoning process. And so, like Descartes, by knowing at least one thing is true, we can begin our search for other truths. Geisler puts it this way, The nature of truth is crucial to the Christian faith. Not only does Christianity claim that there is absolute truth, that's a truth that's true for everyone, everywhere, at all times, but Christianity insists that the truth about the world is that which corresponds to the way things really are. For example, the statement, God exists, means that there really is a God. Likewise, the statement that God raised Christ from the dead means that the dead corpse of Jesus of Nazareth supernaturally left its tomb a few days after it was buried. Christian truth claims correspond to the actual state of affairs about what they claim. Truth can be understood both from what is, but truth can also be understood from what is not. So we can know the truth exists, but that's not enough, is it? Geisler also noted that there are many inadequate views of the nature of truth. For instance, truth is not what works. That was a popular theory advocated by a well-known pragmatist, William James. James and his followers said that truth is what works. According to James, quote, truth is the expedient in the way of knowing. A statement is known to be true if it brings the right results. It is the expedient as confirmed by future experience and effect, unquote. Of course, this doesn't seem to be how truth is understood in court, where an expedient testimony may be perjury. It's possible to still wonder whether a statement corresponded to the facts. In a court, if a statement does not correspond to the facts, it was not true regardless of whether it was expedient. Exactly right. Now, Geisler also noted that truth is not that which coheres. Some scholars have suggested that truth is whatever is internally consistent. In other words, it's coherent. But that is also an inadequate definition of truth. I mean, you can have empty statements that hang together, even though they're completely devoid of truth content. So, to sum up, truth about reality is what corresponds to the way things really are. Telling it like it is. This correspondence applies to abstract realities as well as actual ones. There are mathematical truths. There are also truths about ideas. In each case, there is a reality, and truth accurately expresses it. Falsehood, then, is what does not correspond to the way things really are. This means that if it lacks proper correspondence, it is false. Yes, and another important point about the correspondence view of truth is that this view of truth cannot be denied without using it. In other words, as we put this in our Lord of Logic series that we did a while ago, the correspondence view of truth is affirmed in dissent. In other words, the premise must be true because any argument that attempts to rebut the premise has to presume the truth of the premise in the attempted rebuttal. So, absolute truth means it is true for all people, all places, all the time. The term relative truth isn't truth at all, for it claims that something is true for some people, but not all people, or true in some places, but not other places, or sometime, but not all the time. Truth is not what works. 
what is cohesive, consistent, or coherent, truth must have these qualities. But these things do not make something true. Truth is not what is comprehensive, not what feels good, not what the majority think or want. Truth is not what is sincere, for it is possible to be sincerely wrong. Yes. And one final important point is that there are biblical underpinnings for the correspondence view of truth. You know, the Ninth Commandment says, You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 and 22 says, You may say to yourselves, How can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? And then it goes on to provide the answer, If what a prophet claims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, then that is a message the Lord has not spoken. So the Bible clearly affirms that truth is ascertainable and that truth must correspond to reality. Not only that, but we rely on the fact that truth is what corresponds to reality every day of our lives. In our daily conversation, we might say, check out the facts. And in the courtrooms all over the country, the existence and knowability of truth is affirmed every time someone swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We use correspondence as the rule for truth in our daily lives, and we use it all the time. Exactly right. Now, before we close today, I would just like to make one final note. Anyone who would like to investigate this topic of truth and its role in apologetics further, they might want to go ahead and get a copy of the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, and that was written by Norman Geisler. I have a copy of the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics in my library, and I know that Dr. Alexander does as well. And I just want to make this final note. I know that some of the material that we're discussing in this series, well, it can sound pretty esoteric, pretty complicated, pretty highbrow. But today, Christians who want to be able to have an impact on their families, much less their culture, they've got to be able to provide intelligent answers to skeptics. Not just skeptics about Christianity, but skeptics about whether truth is even knowable. So we have to be able to provide intelligent answers to those skeptics because, unfortunately, those skeptics are all around us. So, in essence, our goal is to help listeners understand how to contend for their faith with certainty and confidence. We're making no assumptions whatsoever about what anyone may or may not already know. We want to show that any thinking person can prove the existence of God. This is the central truth of Romans chapter 1, verse 18-20. through 20. Quote, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been seen, so that men are without excuse. Unquote. It sounds like a great time for a prayer. Jesus' ministry while he was on earth was all about saving those who are lost spiritually. The need for doing that continues today. Let's listen to a prayer for the spiritually lost. A prayer for the spiritually lost. Wondrous and perfect Father, we exalt your name and sing praises to your glory. Your word is the foundation of joy and the bedrock of hope. In you, there is blessed assurance. Without you, 
the shifting sands of a sin-stained shore would wash away beneath us and we would be swept into the depths by the tides of trouble. With you we cannot be moved or thrown down, though all the waves of chaos should pound against us with fervor and anger. Lord, too many have been swept away, and we are grieved to see all about us people we know whose life foundations are crumbling. We see our neighbors being pushed to and fro by the currents of popular opinion, and whose lives are filled with fear and despair because they have no sustaining source of truth. We come before you today to plead for their rescue and redemption. We ask that you sovereignly intercede in the lives of those who are lost and sinking and turn their hearts to you. As when the citizens of Nineveh heard Jonah's preaching and repented, please touch our land and community with your word and call our neighbors to you. Give us opportunities to witness that we would miss on our own. Strengthen our hearts to stand for Christ as he stood for us. The glory is his alone, so it is in his name we pray, give thanks, and ask for the lost to be saved. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not perfect, but our boss is.